Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm. Welcome to our teleconference for today. The topic is good business practices, maintaining I-9 public access, labor certification, and other audit types of files. On me with my panel today, I have two of our brilliant, fantastic Murthy Law Firm attorneys, Pam Janice and Adam Rosen. Each of them will discuss different issues today, uh, and we hope to have you completely prepped. God forbid there is a knock on the door, and you get this surprise, unwanted visit from the Fraud Detection and National Security, or FDNS official, knocking on your company's door, asking you for documents or information. Well, for those of you who've attended the previous Murthy Law Firm teleconference series, you know that most of these officers will show up pretty much unannounced on your company doorstep. And if you aren't mentally prepared and otherwise prepared for it, it could cause some consternation or panic amongst you and your employees. Most of the times, these gentlemen or general ladies will show up in connection with H-1B petitions that you as an employer or your company has filed on behalf of your H-1B employees. Some of these people who show up might be contractors, which means that they've been outsourced and they're not FDNS or USCIS employees. Other times they are employees, and sometimes even immigration and ICE or immigration and customs enforcement officials will show up and ask to do the audit. They often will ask to speak with you as the company official and interview you. They may even ask to interview your employees to ask them a bunch of questions about the company and the process. Some of the documentary requests may be extremely broad. They may ask you, for example, for everything on your company for the last one year or two years or three years or five years or X number of employees or all your employees' files. And we can advise you on why you may not want to or why you may have to give them everything that they ask for. Understanding your legal uh, obligations, but also your legal rights can be very helpful. And if you're not sure what to do and how to go about it, we hope that after you listen to today's teleconference, you will get an idea of how to respond to these situations. So Pam, what do you think the employer needs to do in terms of the Form I-129 to keep their paperwork, you know, consistency in information, et cetera? What would you recommend? I would recommend that any employer who is using H-1B for uh, foreign nationals keep a chart of the I-129 petitions that they have. The reason why is the employer is expected to know what each worker is was actually hired for. USCIS can always come back at a later date and ask questions for details that were in the original petition. So it's important for the employer to have an easily accessible record of who the person is, what was the position that they were hired on that's listed on their H-1B, what the salary is, what the location is, where they're working. And it's important to keep that accessible and updated so that when things change, you, the employer knows that I have to update my documents, I have to update my public access forms. If an individual leaves, I need to notify USCIS. The employer is required to withdraw an approved petition by notifying USCIS in writing and notifying the individual. 
And the, the reason for this is to stop the salary obligations? Yes. If the employer doesn't make an effective notification, then they, their wage obligations under the labor condition application don't end. So if the employer is keeping track of this and documenting it in a chart, if the USCIS or Department of Labor or ICE come back to ask the question, the employer knows what information it originally presented, it knows what the stated things are for the individual people, and it can, has a record of, I notified USCIS and this per the individual that they were terminated on this date, and I have a copy. Okay, but I think the biggest problem that a lot of them say is, well, the person's hesitating to join me, but will join me in a little while, in like six months or a year. Can I just keep it sort of at the back burner so I don't have to, again, spend three or four or $5,000 in filing fees and legal fees and processing fees and premium fees? to the government, and some t a lot of companies will do that, but you're saying that if they do that, because that is an advantage to being able to bring that person back, is if that employee later says, I wasn't paid and I wasn't working anywhere else, because a lot of times you don't have to pay for that if the person is presumably working somewhere else, though the Department of Labor doesn't, isn't as clear about well, it. The Department of Labor has their own set of rules, and it's important for any company that's sponsoring someone on an H-1B to remember that there's two sets of rules, two agencies that are enforcing these rules, and so you may have, and so when you have the Department of Labor that has specific timeframes at which point the company has an obligation and owes a wage to a particular worker, if that <laughs> H-1B petition has not been withdrawn, the Department of Labor can come back because you might end up having somebody who perhaps was working for somebody else and decides he's upset with the company that had the H-1B approved and goes and files a complaint with the Wage and Hour Division. From their perspective, this Wage and Hour Division that enforces the uh, LCA rules for the Department of Labor, they're going to come to the employer and say, well, your H-1B petition was approved and you didn't revoke it, you didn't fire this person, and so you were obligated to pay this wage to this person. So, so remember, as a company, yes, there's an advantage, but there's a disadvantage, and you have to weigh because even spending three or $5,000 on a petition, while it's very, very painful, especially for small companies, it's a whole lot better than spending 30000 or 60000 or 90000 for a year, a year and a half worth of salary in many cases. There's also, there's also a credibility issue, mm -hmm. Sheila, I think, particularly now where USCIS is scrutinizing cases much more. They're going back to issue notices of intent to revoke petitions sometimes. Mm -hmm. If a company has lots of petitions that have been approved but people have never been employed, USCIS might on the next petition not believe that there actually is a job for this person. That's true, and they do it. ask, how many H-1s do you have approved? How many employees joined you? Why didn't they join you? It's true. They ask a lot of those questions in future RFEs, which is request for evidence, or future notice of intents to revoke. Uh, Pam, I know you're dying to get back to the topic and discuss the issues. Well, I was just going to mention in response to your question, some of our listeners may recall from our recent teleconference, I think it was our last one, where we talked about the employer's obligations, not only when terminating employees, but when you have employees that never show up, that never report. Mm -hmm. Those employer obligations in, in, in regards to maintaining their documents, um, their obligations to pay labor condition application wages, those don't disappear just because the person doesn't report. The employer actually has to take action to protect themselves, to make sure that if Department of Labor or USCIS or ICE comes knocking on their doors, that the employer has the documents in place to say, I know I had this obligation, this person never showed up, therefore I took this action. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Continue, Pam. 
so when we were talking earlier about maintaining a chart of the petitions, the primary reason for this is so that the employer can easily refer back to what they've previously said so that they can see, okay, now this person, there's been a material change in their petition, I need to do an amendment. Or I see that we've had three H-1Bs that are going to be expiring in three months, we need to prepare the extension petition. That way, by, by keeping that record of the, all the H-1B cases they have going on, the employer can hopefully protect themselves from having an unfortunate situation where a timely extension wasn't filed, or they failed to file an amendment when there was a material change, or they failed to file a labor condition application when a location changed. Any t their USCIS and ICE and Department of Labor, they're picking up on those small mistakes where employer forgot, inadvertently maybe forgot to do one of these because they weren't making, keeping a record of what the people were supposed to be working as, and taking those small, most likely inadvertent errors and using that as a starting point to go into a full-scale investigation. So it's important if the employer can keep record of what their H-1B workers have in their petitions what they're supposed to be doing, where they're supposed to be working, and when they're going to need to be extending so that they, the company can protect itself. I think those are all excellent and valid points, and the most common problem that we are seeing is where the LCA was not filed for the new work location prior to the employee starting at the new work location, and often this has even started, we have started seeing requests for evidence or RFEs with the 485s, denials for the candidates. Yes. The, because of these additional fraud investigators hired by the government, the level of scrutiny has increased literally by 500% more, 1,000% more, where they are looking at every little nuance and going after companies and saying, we're going to deny your H-1 extensions. We're going to deny the person's green card, which is truly unfortunate because a, a lot of times it's really not very intentional and there's no real benefit to the employer uh, in saving money or anything by not filing the LCA for the new work location. Thank you, Pam, for going over that because I think the maintenance of documents for I-129s is very important. Adam, now coming, uh, coming to you, you know, yes. employers often hear of the term public access file. They sort of have an idea. I think many of them hopefully are now doing that. Uh, what are the documents required in a public access file? Well, um, first, let's, I, I, I first wanted to just touch on the name because we throw it around, and it's important to understand that the reason it's called a public access file, it's because the public can access it. The, the Department of Labor's rules say that there are these items that you're supposed to have and make available to anybody from the public who wants to look at it. And so... Among the things that they're looking to see in there is your labor condition application. They want to see the, instru the uh, instructions to the LCA form. Um, I think right now there are about 10 pages long of lots of text that maybe not everybody reads um, at all or ever or, or every single time. But those, those pages need to be included because those include um, the requirements that the employer has, um, whether the employer is a dependent company um, if you're claiming an exemption because the employee is going to be paid uh, a wage of at least $60,000 or has a master's degree or equivalent that's related to the work that the person is going to be doing. Um, if the company is claiming an exemption, then there needs to be a list of the exempt employees in a public access file. There should be a, uh, an actual, what's called an actual wage statement, which is essentially um, a simple statement of what the person is going to be paid. 
Um, and that should be consistent with what's on the LCA as the rate of pay and on the I-129 form. Um, that may change over time, in which case you'll, adding, you'll be adding additional actual wage statements to your public access file. But to start, there should be a single actual wage statement. And you'll also have a memorandum that explains how you get to setting an actual wage. Um, and, and there are some other documents that, that need to be included, but one of the, the things that's, that's important to keep in mind is that this public access file that you're creating is necessary for each labor condition application. Now, um, the LCA itself does not actually name the particular person for whom it's going to be used, so you certainly want to be maintaining uh, a separate chart. Again, charts are you know, very valuable when you're dealing with all the requirements um, to know who the LCA is being used for but you are going to have to maintain this per LCA, so if you're going to do another LCA because the person is moving to a new location or you're filing your next H-1B petition, that's going to be a new public access file and an entirely new set of documents. You can't simply throw everything together in one file. And part of that is because there's specific requirements and, and limitations on how long you have to actually keep a public access file. So, for example, the, one of the requirements for retaining it is that it's for one year after the LCA expires. So you might have somebody who's been working for you for seven years. The LCA that you did the first time and it was for three years valid, that public access file, you know, you don't have to maintain the entire time the person's employed by you. And that's why it's, it's very helpful to actually maintain it per LCA, have your chart that cross-references it, but this way, if you have a policy in place, um, that's in writing and that's com followed on a regular basis at a certain point in compliance with your policy and you choose to no longer retain the public access file, you know that that's for the, for the particular LCA. Instead of having one particular folder that might have a whole bunch of documents related to a particular person and you really don't know wh what LCA it relates to or not. Wait, so I'm a little bit confused. I thought the retention requirement says that it should be one year after the worker's employment ends, or one year after the LCA expires, or one year after the LCA is withdrawn, isn't it the latest of e any of these? Yes, that's correct, Sheila, so the latest. So it's the one year after the worker's employment ends if you use the LCA to employ the person. <laughs> so if, or it's one year, if you haven't used the LCA to employ someone on it, then it would be one year after the LCA expires, or one year after the LCA is withdrawn. So if you have someone who has been terminated, then the, it would be one year after the employment date ends. And as um, Pam was mentioning, the employment, the end of employment from the perspective of Department of Labor requires three, three things generally. One, that you've notified the employee in writing. Two, that you've withdrawn the H-1B petition from USCIS. And three, that you've offered this employee to pay the cost of return home transportation. And the one-way return for the principal one applicant. And it's just for the one person. <laughs> it's not for baggage. It doesn't have to be first class. And the person doesn't even have to accept it. But we have seen cases where Department of Labor has insisted that the employer have actually offered it, even when the person was going to work for another company mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. So then how can it be one year after the LCA expires if the person the LCA expired and the person continued to work for that company, it would still work? It would, okay, so yeah, you'd, you'd, still, you'd still want to maintain that LCA the, uh, when the employment ends, then you would wait one year, and at that point the public access file would not need to be maintained. The, um, there is some question based on the rule whether um, if you use an LCA for, um, <coughs> if you have, 
if you have an LCA that, um, you know, if you have an LCA that you've used for somebody, but it is with you choose to withdraw it at some point, it basically the safest thing is to to comply with the law based on the way it's written is keep them as long as the person works for you and then one year after employment ends. And it's very important to make sure that you've maintained a record of when exactly the employment ends and that you've, you know, if you fired the person, that you've done all three things. Because if you can't show it, then you're fighting an uphill battle with Department of Labor. Okay, thank you, Adam. And you know, the kinds of issues that often, that apparently has been shown by Department of Labor, by ICE uh, agents, information that is missing or in error, are missing an LCA for the location where the employee worked, as I just pointed out, incorrect wages being paid based on the requirement of paying the higher of the prevailing wage or the actual wage, the fact that the notice was not posted at the work site or for the required 10 consecutive days or in two conspicuous locations, or that uh, you know there's been inconsistencies in how the law has been applied. Um, as an employer, as the company that's doing both the labor certification and green card after the H-1B, you really want to be sure that you do um, understand that the government, both USCIS and Department of Labor, always have the right and the authority to revoke the labor certification of the I-140 at any time, even after the case has been approved, if they suspect that there's fraud in the process. Um, and the kinds of paperwork and documentation, especially with PERM that is required uh, for the audit file includes copies of the advertisements, the resumes, the results of recruitment, why you require the particular education or experience, the bis what we call the business necessity. Uh, we also like to keep all of the degree certificates, the work experience letters, the credentials uh, of the individual's foreign worker that the company is sponsoring. Um, to show that these were in fact the minimum requirements for the employer and that the employee did have all of that information. You need to maintain them carefully and be prepared to show the legitimacy, the fact that it's legitimate and bona fide case. Um, obviously the notice of posting at the work site is also required for the labor certification as well, besides the labor condition application. Um, okay, Pam. I know that Department of Labor requires the employer to keep the audit file for each labor certification, and that's what uh, you know we were just talking about. We were talking about the fraud-related issues that they can revoke it. But you're going to give us a brief overview on what's required from the company's perspective. Thank you, Sheila. There are certain things that are standard for every single Department of Labor audit. The employer must provide evidence of the required recruitment, which. The types of recruitment depend on whether it's a professional or non-professional position. All this recruitment had to have been done before the labor certification was even filed, and the Department of Labor can request it at any point. They can request evidence of the, the recruitment that was placed. They can request uh, the prevailing wage determination and the prevailing wage request form, the notice of posting, or if the position is covered by a collective bargaining agreement, evidence that the representative was notified. They can also request the resumes. And we're seeing an increase in the Department of Labor's audits asking for 
proof of the resumes that were received in response to the recruitment, not just the results of recruitment summary, but also the actual resumes and the reasons for disqualification for each person and proof of the people being contacted, meaning certified mail or telephone records, et cetera. So there's definitely an increase in Department of Labor scrutiny. They can also request evidence of business necessity for those requirements, foreign language requirements, if the individual is qualifying with experience gained with the sponsoring employer, evidence that the two positions are not substantially comparable. If there's a familial or ownership interest in the, in the company, there's additional documentation that can be requested there. Ideally, all of this information, all of the potential grounds for an audit should have been addressed prior to preparing and filing the case. All of this should be in a file, a compliance file, that the employer must maintain for five years after filing the labor certification. Because as you mentioned, Department of Labor can come back, USCIS can come back. In fact, we're also seeing some instances where the Administrative Appeals Office in I-140 appeal cases are coming back and asking to see the recruitment, the resumes, documentation from the original labor certification. So even though, even for cases where the employer wasn't required by law, old RIR, or traditional recruitment cases, where they weren't required to keep those, now we're seeing instances where the Administrative Appeals Office is asking for them. So it's even more important than ever that all of these potential issues all be identified up front, that the documentation be in good order, and that the employer maintain a copy of that for five years after filing the labor certification. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. And I know you went through rather quickly because obviously you live, eat, and breathe this stuff, Pam. Um, you know, the business necessity, and hopefully most of you who are listening understand all of these issues because we have discussed it and described uh, the issues uh, that come up in a labor certification because if you as an employer ask for something that the Department of Labor considers as excessive or tailor-made to the applicant or insisting that a master's degree is required or a bachelor's in five when the job actually may not require it, it could have require a business necessity type of argument and letter to be submitted. Also, Judge, uh, Pam just went through rather quickly the experience gained with the green card sponsoring employer a lot of times the employee may have been with the company for five years and you really want to show that experience, but Department of Labor, as you know, doesn't like it and it could result in an audit for the experience if it's gained with the company. Um, okay, uh, Adam, so the Department of Labor comes in and asks for audits of perm cases. What does this entail and how does it work? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that Right now, at least as far as what we know, they're not physically coming into companies' offices. The audits are in the form of a letter. They're called audit notifications. They generally provide you with 30 days. And what we've seen so far is that they come once or sometimes twice. Usually when we've seen the resumes requested in an audit, I believe that they've usually come in in the second audit after they've gotten all the ads and the documentation. With greater frequency, though, they're asking for the resumes in the first audit because they're identi they've I originally identified these issues as a reason to ask for resumes, and so they've basically compacted the two into a single audit. There is, though, also the power um, for them to issue what they are were sort of audits, but not officially audits, and those don't have to be 30 days. 
So you might get a letter from Department of Labor asking questions, asking for documents, and they're giving you less than 50, 30 days, maybe 15 days, maybe 21. Those still have to be responded to just as seriously as if it's officially called an audit. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that because you're required to maintain all that documentation for five years after submitting the labor certification, the audit can come even after certification. And I don't believe that we've seen or heard of any cases that have been audited after it's been approved, but that is within the Department of Labor's power. Now, if there's an attorney who's filed the case, the Department of Labor is supposed to be mailing the audit letter to the attorney. And there have been instances where the Department of Labor says, we've sent you an audit, but you've never responded to it. You know, if there is an attorney involved and the attorney can confidently and honestly say that there was nothing received, then going back to the Department of Labor and laying it all out for them to explain that they need to reissue that audit letter is certainly something that you want to work on and take care of as quickly as possible because the Department of Labor, even though they may not have denied the case yet, that's certainly something that might quickly happen now that the issue has been brought to the fore. And they should, and we've seen cases where this has happened and they've gone ahead and um, properly issued the audit letter to, um, to the attorney so that it could be responded to. And so, as Pam was explaining, and as Shayla was explaining, all of this documentation regarding all these different kinds of issues, whether it's standard or a little bit different, higher risk, lower risk, you want to have all that together because, again, you should have 30 days, but even 30 days is not a very long period of time. Especially so many people traveling abroad for a couple of weeks. I mean, that could really eat into your time. Especially because one of the things that you have to provide is a copy of the LC form signed by the employer, the sponsored worker, and the attorney if there is one involved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this can, this can be a time-sensitive issue, obviously being able to respond to the audit notification request and the requirement to maintain the documents. And even though audits are not being done after the labor approval by Department of Labor, we are hearing of USCIS asking for it at the I-140 stage. Yes and at the 485 stage for the candidate about the labor certification and who interviewed and what happened, particularly I-140, but even at the I-485 stage. So something for you as a company to be aware of. Okay, Pam, I know that this every company in the country has to maintain I-9 forms, um, but employers are always you know, a little concerned about what exactly is required and where, how long should it be maintained and all of that. What exactly is required with the I-9 process? Thank you, Sheila. The problem with the I-9s that most employers encounter is that they haven't taken the time up front to establish a set policy. And so what we see a lot of times in I-9 audits is the employers will keep copies of documents for some people and they won't keep doc copies of documents for others. They, they don't necessarily have all of the information correctly filled out in the form or the dates that are signed don't match up. Things are done after the fact. It's really important that the employer make this a standard process and policy up front and then make it part of the orientation process for all of their new employees. The USCIS has published a handbook for providing guidance for employers on how to go through the I-9 process and for the most part the information in there we've found has been very useful and they have a lot of frequently asked questions. but. The first part of the I-9 is completed by the employee and part two is completed by the employer. The employer should not be advising the employee as the employee is completing part one. The employer cannot 
guide the employee towards providing certain types of documents other, over other types of documents. The employer can only accept the documents that the employee chooses to provide from the list of acceptable documents, from A, from the list of co under column A or B and C, depending on what types of documents. So it's important the employer take it very seriously that they review the information provided on the form and the guidance provided by USCIS, consult with an attorney up front about setting up a standard policy and practice for keeping documents, will they keep copies, will they not, and then at a, so for, on a regular basis conduct audits of their I-9 forms so that they can see we have a problem here, that we haven't been doing this correctly, that we need to, from this point forward, enact this policy. And when they're doing that, they should not be backdating documents. This is a problem that sometimes we see where employers discover they've been making mistakes in completing the I-9 forms and then after the fact trying to go back and uh, unring the bell. And you can't do that. The best that they can do is go forward in a good way and notate the forms, this, is, this was corrected as the result of an audit on this date. Okay, and I know that when I had a, uh, when I participated in a conference uh, last week on an all-day employment law conference for HR managers uh, and human resource, um, you know, directors, etc., there was a one-hour panel on immigration, and one of the company HR people said to me, "I've actually misplaced 400 or 500 of my I-9s. What can I do? Shall I go back and like do it? I know I'm so embarrassed to even ask you this question. What should I do?" And both the other employment law firm that was there, the employment lawyer, and myself, who had just finished speaking on the government and not what to do when the government knocks on your door, said that whatever you do, you cannot go back and backdate the forms. You can't recreate them as if they were created on that day. Keep a notation, keep a file, say misplaced, but we ourselves went and cleaned up our act, got, had every single employee sign a fresh I-9 from scratch, and if the government ever comes and audits, at least you would have done it before they did the, the, they came in and knocked at the door before it looked like you were trying to cover your tracks. And hopefully you will find your original somewhere. But if you don't, but at least you have this backup set because whatever you do, you cannot, you know, fictitiously backdate documents created because all that's considered improper and you definitely don't want to violate the law. Talking about violations of the law, Adam, I know that the law makes it so scary and employers get really panicky and we've heard of horror stories of employers being criminal indictment and civil violations and monetary penalties. Can you just quickly go over it? I mean, it sounds, some of these, uh, you know, paperwork seems so straightforward and simple and it's difficult to imagine uh, that the penalties could be that strict. I know we're very, very sensitive about time-related issues. We like to make it between 30 and 40 minutes, 45 minutes, so we are gonna to try to wrap up in the next five or 10 minutes. Um, and trying to wrap this up, but Adam, quickly go over sure. it and then we'll just conclude. Typically, enforcement of I-9 requirements are, is going to be handled by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE agents. They investigate uh, typically I-9 violations and fraud in other areas of the immigration law. There are generally two kinds of in fraud investigations and they can certainly be intertwined. Uh, ones that will involve fines and monetary penalties that are civil matters and those that, will, that are a criminal investigation which can result in a referral to the U.S. Attorney's Office. They're the federal prosecutors. Something can start out as civil and turn into a criminal investigation or it might start out as a criminal investigation. Um, sometimes something might get started out as an investigation by USCIS's Fraud Detection Unit and go over to ICE. Um, there are a number of different 
federal criminal statutes that relate to false statements that are being made on forms, and this is in part where the, war the caution against not backdating and dating things when they are actually created, um, even if they're, it's done in an effort to correct a failure to comply. Um, and just to give you a, an example, there was a recent indictment um, in February of this year, I believe, involving a computer consulting company that was uh, criminally indicted because the the It was February of 2008, actually, eight, two years ago. Um, the indictment alleged that the company did not always have jobs available for workers when it actually filed the H-1B petition. So this goes back to what we were discussing previously about um, revoking your H-1Bs if the person is not actually being employed. And um, because the company placed them on non-paying status, they were benched when they came into the U.S. Um, and in some instances, actually, the foreign workers being sponsored um, were placed in jobs and locations that weren't previously certified. There was no labor condition application um, with all the requirements that have to be met in order to protect U.S. workers. And I think by just having one criminal indictment like this really scares everybody because um, it is sort of the government trying to create an example and, and you know, put people put everyone on notice that something like this could happen. So, you know, some of the very, very important things that you as an employer or company needs to remember is that if the agent does come and knock at the company's door, ask to speak with you, that's pretty scary and bad enough. But what if they ask to speak with your employees? If they say, we want to interview your company employees, well, by law, they cannot interview company employees on company time, during, uh, on the company premises, because it's really... Uh, a choice because it's your you're paying their salary at that time, but the employee certainly has the choice to answer questions after hours or at their home, uh, or call back the uh, uh, the agent or the ICE investigator or the DOL agent um, on the on the evening or on the weekend. Um, if during the course, obviously, it's advisable for you to have a lawyer present to help and guide you because you don't want to be giving out information or documents that are not required to be given or that may be beyond the scope of the FDNS officer, for example, to ask you for broad-based, broad-scoped, because remember, FDNS by its very nature is more an adjudicative authority because USCIS was meant to grant benefits, not take away benefits through investigations. That was meant to be ICE and CBP's responsibility and Department of Homeland Security and D Department of Labor, but not of USCIS. But FDNS got this later on because it was an agency created by USCIS. Obviously, at the end of the day, we tell people the most important thing is to keep your paperwork and your documents in order, like your LCAs, your H-1 petitions, your PERM, your I-9s. Follow immigration laws and regulations. Um, and be mentally prepared and have a plan of action. Keep someone in the company ready. Who is your main point of contact? Who is going to respond? What is your strategy? Double check and get your files audited and really do your homework so you are able to deal with any unwanted surprise in a cool and calm manner and be able to withstand it. We hope that we all, between Pam, Adam, and myself, we have given you a quick overview of how to prepare for such an eventuality. Thank you so much for being a part of our teleconference. We really look forward to having you next month in the first Wednesday as usual, and you have a great day. Bye-bye.